Have you ever imagined what it would be like to be famous? Like really, really famous. Have you ever imagined what it would be like to be Dak Prescott? Or Jason Witten? Have you ever been around when a famous person walks by and, and people kind of become aware of it? They, they begin to get followed by all sorts of people with all sorts of purposes. I think generally there's kind of two classes of people that would follow Jason Witten around, let's say, DFW Airport. Uh, you'll see kids following him around. And those kids, they're following him around because they are crazy about Jason Witten. If y'all are not familiar, he is, what is it, the best uh, the absolute best uh, tight end of all time ever, maybe, or at least a really, really good one right now. All right, don't fight me on that. We'll, we'll talk later. Uh, there'll be kids following Jason Witten, but those kids follow him all of the time. You ever, ever see a kid with that poster on their wall, and then they go to practice maybe that week, and they, they say, I want to be like Jason Witten when I grow up. And so they start to find out what kind of things does he do? How does he play football? And they start to emulate those things and they start to train really hard because they know he trains really hard and they want to be like him when they grow up. That's kind of the first class of people that might follow Jason Witten around DFW Airport. There's another class of people. And those are the people who know the value of his autograph. And they know the value of his autograph on all sorts of different paraphernalia. They know a football goes for $75 and a jersey would go for $300 and all these different things. And they want to maybe just get that autograph because they can get a little piece of the pie if they were to interact with Jason Witten. And, and like those people, uh, he probably has what a whole lot of famous people have is uh, kind of an entourage, a whole bunch of uh, maybe agents or lawyers or different people that are making money off of Jason Witten. You know, one football player can, can uh, employ several people in a whole variety of different ways. And I always imagine what it must be like for famous people to try to differentiate between the people who love them, care about them, and are following them to help them and be like them, and, and the people who are just following them to see what they can get, that are just using them. I'm sure it's a, it's a problem that a lot of folks have when they get to that level of success, but it's the same thing with a lot of followers of Jesus, too. There's a whole lot of people who are following Jesus because of what they can get, what comes with it. They're not, they're not real crazy about the sin talk and, and, and maybe the associations that come with all of that, but, but they like having a, a group of people that they can be around. They like being part of something. They, they know that if they put John 3.16 on their business logo in Texas, they might get a little extra bump and, and people who, who buy from them because they appear to be Christians. There's people who are following Jesus just to get a miracle, just to get healing, just to get whatever, uh, a raise, anything that somebody, some preacher, some slimy, greasy preacher has promised them. And then there's people who follow Jesus, and all they want 
is to know him better, to serve him more faithfully, and to be more like him. How do we make sure that we are following Jesus like those little kids follow Jason Witten around the, around the football field at practice? How do we make sure we're following Jesus with everything we are honestly and not just using him for our own gain? Today we're going to look at what the disciples got wrong about following Jesus and then how we can get it right. Very simple. What they got wrong, how we can get it right. I'd like you to open your Bibles today because we're going to be in the text of Mark chapter 10. We're going to stay there. And I want you to have it in front of your face. Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 45. Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 45. We're going to see, first of all, the disciples didn't follow Jesus correctly because they didn't understand his mission. They didn't understand it at all. I'm going to read the whole passage, and then we'll kind of break it down into chapters or into sections. Verse 32, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were astonished. But those who followed him were afraid. Taking the twelve aside, he began to tell them the things that would happen to him. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests, And the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And he will rise after three days. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him and said, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. What do you want me to do for you? He asked them. They answered him, Allow us to sit at your right and at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you don't know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to to drink or to be baptized with the same baptism I am baptized with? We are able, they told him. Jesus said to him, You will drink the cup I drink. You will be baptized with the same baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or my left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten disciples heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. Jesus called them over and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those in high positions act as tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There's a lot going on in this passage. There's a, there's a whole lot of metaphor. There's some wordplay, and there's some things we're not going to understand. So I want to break down the first section real quick. It starts off by saying the disciples were astonished, but they were astonished at what 
It's, uh, if you just read it on its face, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It says Jesus uh, was going up to Jerusalem. They were going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was leading them. And all of a sudden, they're astonished. What are they astonished at? Well, at this point, you've got to understand where the disciples' minds have been. Remember, they didn't understand his mission. They really thought that it was revolution time. They really thought that Jesus was the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament, which he was and is. But they thought that that Messiah, his job was to come in, to kick the Romans out of Israel, to set up the same kingdom that King David had, to destroy Israel's enemies and usher in a time of worldwide peace with Israel as the leading nation. And imagine what that must have been like to them. Imagine what it must have been like to think, hey, we are, we are 12 of the insiders when, at the very beginning, when everything is about to go down and they're going to remember us in the history books. Think about what it must have been like to be at, at those meetings, at, at those meetings in, in the local, uh, uh, I can't think of it, the, the pubs or whatever they, they called them back then, where, where Sam Adams was meeting with the, the Sons of Liberty and they were talking about overthrowing the crown and all these no-name people all, all these people who really hadn't been famous, known for anything, they were, they were making these plans and saying, we have to do something. And now they're in, they're in our, our history books, they're legends, they're the founders of our country. I wonder if the disciples were thinking, man, one day all of Israel is going to tell how, how Peter... And in in the middle of the battle with the Messiah came up and he cut the throat of the the governor and he was a big part of uh, overcoming Rome and and Israel was freed and everybody was was happy and I'm going to be a legend. I I think that has been building in their minds because that's the misconception they have here. They didn't understand Isaiah 53. They They didn't remember it or they didn't know what it meant or what God meant by it. So they said, so they were uh, excited. They were astonished because Jesus, for the first time, is making a direct line to Jerusalem. And there's something about him taking the lead. And Luke is a little more forceful about it. But it's kind of like he says, let's go. It's time. And they think they are on the road to revolution. But right on the way, as they start to get really excited, as they start to think about all the things that might be happening, look at verse 32 uh, we'll call it B, to, for, uh, to verse 33. He said, taking the 12 aside, he began to tell them of the things that would happen to him. He said, see, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes. And at this point, we see what's happening. We see that Jesus is trying to correct them. But if you haven't noticed this pattern in the Bible, notice it now. Very often, the disciples don't get it. They just don't get it. They, they totally misread what Jesus is saying. And so for some reason, they still haven't got it. And we're going to talk about this section in just a minute. I want to actually come back to it. But they don't understand the suffering that Jesus is about to go through. And they don't understand that his goal is not to overthrow Rome. His goal is to overthrow Satan. And that will take his death. Look at verse 35. So two of the disciples... They're excited. They're thinking about what Jesus is going to do. They're thinking about their place in the, in the kingdom that Jesus is going to set up. And two of them, James and John, they approach Jesus. They say, Jesus, we want you to do 
uh, whatever we ask of you. Now, on its face, it's a, it's a crazy question, right? So, we want to ask you something, but we kind of want you to promise beforehand you're going to say yes. Like, my kids haven't learned that yet, but I'm sure it's coming soon. It's like, hey, can you write me a blank check, you know, and just I'll, I'll just write in the amount that I need. Yeah, the answer to that is always no, right? Uh, and Jesus kind of says that. He said, well, what do, you, what do you want me to do for you? He's, he's trying to bring out what their heart is really thinking. And, of course, they say, allow us to sit at your right hand and at your left. Now, in that time, to sit at the right hand of the king or whoever the leader was, it was the highest place of honor. All right? So if you're on the right of somebody, they should honor you more than anything else today because that is the highest place. So look to your left and say, you got to honor me. You gotta, that's the highest place of honor because you, uh, you would not only have the ear of the king, you, you would be a trusted advisor. All right? You would be somebody who can speak into the matters of the kingdom and what's going to happen. Uh, and the left is just the next place down, okay? So if you think of the, the right hand as the highest person of honor, the left is just his number two, just, just right next in line. You still have the ear of the king. You can still talk to this guy. Uh, you're literally sitting right next to him where so many people would like to be. And so James and John, they want that privilege. They want that high distinction. They want that position of power. And Jesus' response goes right to the problem. He says, you don't know what you're asking. I want to ask you something. When Jesus accomplished his mission on earth, who was at his right and at his left? When Jesus accomplished his mission on earth, the person to his right was a, a robber. The per person to his left was a thief. Uh, two criminals hanging on the cross, dying for their crimes. Those are the people that ended up on the right and left of Jesus. James and John didn't expect that. They, they pictured a throne, and Jesus had in his mind a cross. And that's what the problem was. Now, there's a, there's a greater kingdom that is coming where this is all kind of played out, and Jesus is going to explain that. But he says, at first, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? It's one of those weird metaphors. We don't use it today, but if you read the Old Testament, very often the word cup is actually kind of a, a, a play on words or a metaphor that's used to describe some sort of terrible thing that happens to a person, some sort of tragedy. It's usually a picture of suffering in the Old Testament. And he's, so he's saying, you're not able to drink this cup of suffering. Now, sometimes it was used for good things, too. So I can, I can see James and John still kind of holding out hope of, like, you know, that awkward smile starts to get a little weird. Like, they know, they know that they're wrong, but they're not getting it yet, and they're trying to figure out maybe something's good happening. But Jesus said, no, 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 no. There is suffering that is coming. Are you able to suffer that with me? And he uses the same thing with baptism. Are you able to, to be baptized? And that's just one of the hardest sentences to read in the world. But are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? Of course, they think they are. They think they are. They think maybe suffering, if it's anything, will, will be uh, maybe battle. Maybe it'll be warfare. I don't know. They, they, they don't get it. So they say, yes, of course, I can do it. They're so eager to get what they want, but they just don't get it. He says, you will drink the drink, and you will be baptized. But to sit at my right or my left is not mine to give, 
but for those for whom it is prepared. In fact, James and John, according to church history, uh, they both suffered before their, before their death. John was exiled, and a whole other, bunch of other things happened to him. James was killed very early in the church, uh, church history. But they both suffered before they died. In fact, they, they were going to follow Jesus, and they learned that following Jesus meant suffering, but they didn't know it at this time. So they got it wrong. They didn't get it. But I'm guessing that there's probably a very low percentage of people who, if we were in their place, would have gotten it. In fact, I'm guessing that there's a pretty low percentage of people, even, even people here today, that at one time in their life have devalued Jesus and thought of him as just an end to a greater means, a means to a greater end. I knew I'd messed that up. I wonder if there's people here, if you're like me, there's been a time in your life when you, your desire for Jesus has been more about what he can give you, what you can get out of him, than simply knowing, loving him, and following him. And Jesus is going to tell us what it means to be a true follower in the last four verses of this text, verses 41 to 45. The disciples obviously were mad at him. They said, when the uh, ten disciples heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. Jesus called them over and said to them, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. The Gentiles, they were always the, the picture of the bad people. They, they were the, the Romans. They, they were the barbarians. They were everybody who wasn't connected to God and didn't know his word. And so he's pointing out to this example. If you ever see somebody in a position of power, have you ever noticed how they just kind of very smug and they just walk around and they kind of use their influence? Do you, do you know do you know? You don't know who I am, do you? Right? Let, me, let, me, let me tell you, let me explain how great I am or who I know or who my cousin is so that you can treat me the way I deserve to be treated. People uh, being tyrants over one another. He says, it's not so among you. And then he gives us the key to following Jesus. If we're going to live in the kingdom of God, this is the key. This is the principle that we have, we have to hold on to. He says in verse 43, On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you will be slave to all. Following Jesus is willfully living in an upside-down, topsy-turvy, backwards mindset. If you want to be great, you have to serve. If you want to be the greatest, you have to be a slave. To who? To Jesus? No, to everyone. What about the people I don't like? Yes! What's the difference between a servant and a slave? These are two different words that are used here. One was kind of a, uh, think of it as maybe a waiter, somebody who would wait tables or help, maybe come to church and take out the trash and all of those things, a helpful person. Uh, but the slave is a very different mindset. It's somebody who is owned. Uh, it's somebody who has very limited rights. In this day, you know, let's, let's not think about what slavery became, but it's slavery in this time. If you wanted to go to court and you were a slave, you would have to go to your, the head of your household. You would have to ask permission. You, you didn't have legal standing. If you want to follow Jesus and you want greatness in his kingdom, 
It means putting others above yourself and giving up your rights to help another person, to love another person, to serve another person. He's not talking about bragging rights, and we can easily translate this. Well, I've served in church every Sunday for the past 10 years, and I I always show up, and I always take the trash out. And and you can kind of turn service into kind of bragging rights today, right? Have you ever ever thought about that? Like, I'm a really good person. I must be doing this because I'm following Jesus. That's, That's not it at all. He's saying what you have to do if you want greatness is stop wanting Uh, greatness. You actually have to change your mind about what's important so that you're not worried about the things that you want. You're not worried about the things that are important to you. You're not worried about the way you like things, but you're only worried about what your neighbor needs and how you can better serve them. Why would we do that? Why would we put other people above what we want, what we need, For the same reason that little boy works hard at football practice and learns all about what Dak Prescott and Jason Witten do to get better because they want to be like them. That's your goal as a Christian, okay? When you are saved, man, you're going to have eternal life. God has got you in his hands. You're never going to be let go. But guess what? There's uh, hopefully another 50, 60, 70 years of your life that you've got to do something with. So what is the goal? What is the purpose? It's all about conforming to the image of the risen Savior. It's about being like Jesus. Okay? We are here. God put us on this earth so that we could be his image bearers. And God saved us so that people would look at us, the church, and say, I don't know what it is, but there's something really different about those people. I can't explain it. They're real nice people and all that, those other things, but there's just something different. They're willing to, to give me uh, even the, the last meal that they have to eat. They're willing to lay down on the railroad tracks to help me out. Those people are willing to serve and sacrifice like I've never seen, and I don't know what it is, but I want a little bit of that. We're supposed to draw people to Jesus by being like him. And that happens only when we serve. What does that look like? Jesus said here, he said, even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There's so much wonderful theology in this text, but I would just I want you to think about the immense chasm between what Jesus deserves and what he got when he came to this earth. From the very beginning of creation, he was there. He is the God of the universe. He doesn't need anything. He wasn't lonely. He wasn't saying, man, I could really use some people so I could interact and play with and and I need something. No, he was completely perfect all on his own. And for some unknown reason that I don't think we'll ever be able to fully explain, he created us. He spoke, and by his word, everything started to exist. He created you and me. He created Adam and Eve. He started the human race, and then he watched them rebel against him. And he watched Adam and Eve say, you know what? I would like to do things my way. I don't want to serve you, God. I want to be God. And so they they ate the fruit, and they fell. And you know what he did? He was merciful covered them up. He gave them something to wear. He got them going, and then he, he watched them grow into this large people, Israel, and he watched them, and even though they went into slavery, he freed them, he redeemed them, he turned them into this great kingdom, and then what happened? 
well, I don't want to serve you, God. I like these other gods because they can give me what I want. They promise me health and wealth and prosperity and happiness and love and joy and sex and all those good things that we want. I'm going to follow that God. And he watches them go away. And then he redeems them. He brings them back and he sends his son. And his son gives us the actual words of life. And he says, the kingdom of God is near. And they have an opportunity to accept him as savior and for this whole sin thing to be done with. And they reject him. They crucify him. And that's if we can go back really quickly to verse 33. This is exactly what Jesus says. Remember, this is before it ever happened. He's, he's telling the disciples exactly what's going to happen. If you look at the, the, chrono, uh, the chronology and the stories about Jesus being arrested and crucified, it's just, it follows it perfectly. He says, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man, that's Jesus. It's an Old Testament title for Jesus. will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes. And that's exactly what happened. He was handed over to the Jewish leaders and they held a, a trial by night, something that the Old Testament said was never to be done because you, you just can't, you can't have justice in that quick of a time. But they condemned him. They spat on him. They, they sent him off to a, a Gentile ruler. And that's what Jesus says. They will condemn him to death, hand him over to the Gentiles. The Jews couldn't crucify people. They didn't have the, the legal authority to do that. And they wanted him dead in the worst way possible. So they took him to the Romans and they said, crucify him. In fact, let that wicked thief go so we can kill the person who's claiming to be our king in the worst way possible. They will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him. They will spit on him. They will flog him. The instrument that was used to torture Jesus was a, a, a whip. It was a whip with several different uh, uh, ends or braids on it and they had pieces of glass and metal and rock embedded in it so that it would actually tear the flesh from a person and they gave him 39 lashes and the reason that they gave 39 lashes is because it was said at the time that 40 would kill a man so they took him to the point of death through torture and then they made him carry his cross they nailed him to the cross and they allowed him to die in the most humiliating way imaginable the God of the universe who spoke everything into existence and has been nothing but loving and merciful to his people throughout all history, hanging on a cross. That's what Jesus came to do. That was his mission. It wasn't an accident. He said, the Son of Man did not come to be served. He deserved to be served, but he didn't come to be served. He came to serve. And he did that because the only way to free you and me from our sins is for a sacrifice that can pay for the sins of the world to be given. He was that sacrifice. When he was on the cross, God's wrath poured out for you and for me so that nothing that we've done against God Nothing that we've done against another person that offends God. Nothing that we have done that deserves God. God's wrath and penalty will ever be held against us. I don't know what you've done. And, you know, sometimes I don't want to hear what you've done. But, you know, I'm willing to listen. But I, you know what you've done. Some of you out there are saying, no, Steve, not me. You don't know my past. You don't know my history. You don't know. I really, really, really screwed up. I'm telling you. The guy who wrote most of the New Testament was a murderer. Okay, so you, you're probably, you, you, you probably don't compare to him. And he talked about how God has cleansed him from his sins. There's nothing that Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe, can't forgive you for and will not uh, come into uh, account. He will not hold it against you when you see that. Now, 
That changes how we do everything here. You know what it takes to serve? You know what it takes to sacrifice for other people? It takes two things. It takes an incredible amount of humility, and it takes real, genuine love. If we're going to serve one another in this church and outside of this church, we can't be holding each other's sins against each other. We can't be bringing up, oh, I think they, they've done that poorly. I could do it better. You know, I can't believe that happened. Listen, if the God of the universe doesn't hold anyone's sin against them, we certainly do not have the right to do that to our, our brothers and sisters. We have to have the humility to say, even though I think I would have done something better, or I think that you know, I'm a better person than they are, or I think that what they've done is so terrible, I'm not going to hold their sin against them because you know what? God doesn't do that. Instead, I'm going to love that person. Now, I don't even like that person, but I'm going to love that person because God loved me when I was unlovable. God loved me when I was nothing to him but a sinner. And so instead of ridiculing, instead of uh, harming, instead of, instead of gossiping, instead of pushing people out of our, our family or our lives, we're going to go to people. We're going to see how we can help them. We're going to see what we can do to bring them closer to Christ, what we can do to get them out of those bad habits that they're in or from doing those harmful things that they're in. That's how we serve one another. And you, you all have issues in your family, in your workplace, at school, maybe, maybe in, here in church. I don't where you have somebody who you just can't stand. But you know what? God, God loved you when you were unlovable. And I'm not saying you got to be best friends with everybody, but we can't stand before our God in eternity and think about how we could have helped someone come to a greater knowledge of Jesus or come to a saving knowledge of Jesus just because it was inconvenient for us, just because it was hard for us, just because it would make us sad. They hurt us. Jesus was betrayed, condemned, handed over, spat upon, and you know what he still did? He still died for us. And you can trust him today to forgive you of your sins. You can trust him today to actually hold those sins forgiven. You know, so many things in my life kind of sneak back into my mind. I was like, oh, I wish I wouldn't have done that. And I, starts to, I start to feel that guilt over and over again. No, no, no. Listen, God says you're forgiven. God says you are clean. God says you are righteous. Nothing that your mind says about you or nothing somebody else says about you is nearly as true as what God says about you. God says you are clean. That's the offer we have today. In a moment, we're going to partake of this, but before we do that, I want to give you an opportunity. I want to give you an opportunity. If you have something that you need to be forgiven of, if you need to come to Christ for the first time, if you need to be cleansed, our team's going to be up here. We're going to play some music. I'm going to lead in prayer, but I'd like you to take a few moments just to look inside and say, if I've been using Jesus for what I can get, or if I've been following him with everything I can give, and make the decision that you need to make to, to get that right. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much that you were the 
ultimate example of giving. You gave your son. Our Lord, we, we confess that we are weak and sinful. We deserve to be cast from your presence forever, but in your mercy and your grace and your love, you continue to draw us close to you. You continue to forgive us, and you never, never, never let us go from your hands. God, you are worthy of everything that we have. I pray if there's somebody here today that needs to know you, that would stop holding on to all of their pride and that they would just let it go and say, I need forgiveness. Lord, we know that anyone who trusts in you will be forgiven from their sins. If there's somebody here today who needs to reevaluate or turn away from how they've been following you, Lord, I pray that you would work that in them. And Lord, I pray you continue to work in my heart. I would stop seeing you as something that gives me happiness, blessing, community, and somebody who I would give everything for. Give me that continual grace every day to just be willing to sacrifice everything and not hold on to any of the things that this life could give me tells me is happy. I thank you for your grace and your forgiveness, God.